Hi everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. It's great to be back with you. We're back with episode 11. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. We hope everyone's had a lovely week and had a lovely weekend lined up. We've got uh, our usual uh, offerings to bring you. So we've got two topics for the night with a bit of a common theme though. But before we get to those, we're going to start with our news of the week, which uh, I'm going to bring to you this week. So it's just a nice quick one. It kind of follows on from our episode a couple of weeks back about uh, the provision of early childhood education and family services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families, and uh, Victoria, the Victorian government has made an announcement of an injection of uh, up to $1.6 million over the next two years for specifically Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander services, and with a particular focus on, I guess, what we kind of call integrated services, so um, support for children and families experiencing family violence and more access to allied health professionals. So, um, and it lists um, the six uh, specific uh, community-based early year services that will meet this funding. Uh, that will sorry that will receive this funding, and I think it's just good to keep in mind that. And they make a very good comment right at the end, uh, which I, I quite like, which is um, we encourage the Commonwealth to also support Aboriginal early years services so that all our children can experience the best possible outcomes. And I think that might be a, a thinly veiled, if veiled at all, reference to the upcoming Jobs for Families package, which I know we've uh, we've spoken about on the podcast before. But um, good news, and uh, we hope it sort of paints the way to a bit of a rethink for the federal government as well. So, yeah, Lisa, Leanne, did you get a chance to read that one? Any thoughts? Oh, yeah. Yay, Victoria. (laughs) Yeah. I think any state government that's prepared to fund the child and family centres is, you know, like um, doing a lot better than the states that haven't put their money into it. So, yeah, yay, Victoria. Yeah, and I agree. It's that leadership that they're showing and also those services really that they were started and then suddenly they they seem to be falling off off the edge so it is really fantastic to see that support from the Victorian government and I think one of the most important things for me um, following on from snakes advocacy is that these centers aren't just about the early childhood provision although that's really important it's the uh, the additional services that are often vital to these communities so it is the um, allied health services it is um, support for a whole bunch of other stuff which are best provided in these communities uh, by people within the community. So, yes, good, good announcement. And it's, it's also really bizarre because these services are exactly what the Productivity Commission recommended by recommending funding for the, I've forgotten his name, uh, uh, Tiggy. Tiggy. Twiggy. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Twiggy Forest. His... Yeah, Forrester, Forrester, yeah. And that money has actually come through to those services, I believe, for the services he wanted to fund, which are, you know, nothing else other than child and family services. So it's... Yeah, a move in the and right it's, direction. It's a, fantastic, it's a fantastic model for any service, really. You know, some of those, we've already got quite a lot of um, integrated services across Australia in addition to these child and family centres, and they're, they're a wonderful model. That's great, yeah. Definitely move in the right direction. We might move on to talking about our topics for tonight. So we wanted to make this episode, I guess the the, the theme is going to be sort of uh, politics 101. Um, so we wanted to have a bit of a, I guess, a bit more of an in-depth discussion about policy and politics in Australia, what's important, what isn't, why educators and professionals should be involved. Um 
we've as has been the want over the last few episodes we're doing we're going to mix things up just a tad so i'm just going to quickly have a chat about topic two which is actually going to be an interview i conducted last week with chris Steele, who's the newly 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 elected uh, mla in the act government so uh, he's we've talked about him a little bit on the podcast before but he's uh, got a very strong early childhood background and has just started his new role in government so after uh, lisa leanne and i have finished our first chat with topic one we're going to go to that interview which we hope is um yeah is useful and helpful and and chris has a really good uh sort of policy brain and is now in the politics field as well but to before we get to that uh you're going to hear from us sort of debating some of the big questions about policy and politics so we might get straight into it uh sorry liam just before just before we do jump into our topic i think the the fantastic thing is chris's ongoing dedication to early childhood and he's really stayed in that space and and been very dedicated to it so it's fantastic to bring that experience to the ACT. Yeah he hasn't stopped being an advocate which is good which I think can sometimes happen Mm. when um, they they get into those roles. Um, And the more people with early education background becoming politicians the better. Absolutely absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess since we're talking about this topic, I guess that probably has to be the first question is why is politics and policy important to the sector anyway? How does those discussions, which I guess um, a lot of people would find boring or not something they want to be a part of, how does it impact on the work we do in curriculum and pedagogy and and practice? So, Lisa, I might turn to you first because I know this was something you've been wanting to tackle for a little while. But, yeah, why, why should we be having this discussion at all? That's, it's kind of an interesting topic because for a lot of people in early education, they would say, yeah, I'm not really that much into politics. You know, I don't, I don't understand it. It's not my thing. But at the same time, if I say to them, do you, you think children at your service pay, families at your service pay too high fees, then they'll have really strong feelings about it. If I say... Do you like the amount of documentation that you do today? They'll have really strong feelings about it. If I say, what do you think about immunisation and childcare? They'll have really, really strong feelings about it. And all of those things, as we know, uh, come from the impact of politics and public policy on the sector. All of those things are decided not so much in the service where they're enacted, but in rooms far, far away in Canberra or in our capital cities in the form of state governments. And there the decisions made by people often, I'm sorry, Liam, but often made by blokes. Who sorry, don't everyone. Have, no, we'll <laughs> forgive you this time. Um, but it's often made by blokes who don't necessarily have responsibility for raising children, that even if they do have children of their own, those children but you know are somebody else's responsibility and so what happens on the floor of every early education and care sector is decided outside of that sector and i think that if those people that care about what happens in the sector really need to care about what happens outside the sector that impacts on their service yeah look i think you're 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 absolutely right lisa it's a we could probably spend the whole hour-long episode talking about why that's the case, but um, you're absolutely about the importance of uh, 
educators getting involved in this. And I think one of the comparisons I make is in things like um, probably nursing and teaching for many, many long, long time ago is a big political change was enacted by the people doing the work. They became very quickly very skilled and knowledgeable about how to uh, engage politically, how to engage with policy and decision makers. A lot of it through engagement with the union, particularly, who are very clever about doing that. But for me, it's one of the big gaps in terms of the professionalism and equal, you know, the, or um, professional wages for the sector is our lack of engagement in this space. I think it's beyond the fact that uh, it's it's really important to know you know, why and how the decisions are being made for the sector. It's if we're going to treat it selfishly, which I think is fine, given the work early childhood educators do, that's a crucial part of of making a change in that space. And yep. Liam, I want to make a, um, I want to make a bit of a pop culture reference because I know that, um, I know that uh, you like that, Lisa, when I do this. But um, <laughs> oh. just, <laughs> so I don't know whether anybody saw it or remembers the movie The Devil Wears Prada and the young kind of woman who was working for the Meryl Streep character came in in this blue jumper and she was very sniffy about fashion and um, the the person who's this central figure, Meryl Streep, says, you think you're wearing that jumper because you want to wear that jumper. And then she explains all the ways that it comes down through the the business, the fashion business, the high fashion business to end up being this blue jumper and it influences it. And I think that that's exactly the same thing. All of those things that happen at, in the places that Lisa was just talking about, it all comes down through all of the different channels and has an impact on the work that everybody does on a day-to-day basis. So if our regs and standards were only focused on the size of toilets and um and, and on, you know, the, the way the play equipment looked, then that is all that we would be focusing on. But the fact that those standards embed curriculum and program and planning and pedagogy means that that is what we focus on as well in early childhood settings. But I will say something, Lisa, there is no reason and no legislation that says documentation has to be the way that people think they want to carry it out in really you know, huge... Reads and reads of paper. So I just want to put that out there. There is no legislation that says we must do scrapbooking. There is nothing there. Journals aren't in the law, people. I just need to tell you, Leanne, I actually know that scene from The Devil Wears Prada, which would be the first pop culture reference I've ever understood that you've made. (laughs) Good job, Lisa. (laughs) It's a a great night. It's a great night. (laughs) Um, so I guess the, probably the next big thing to think about then is there's probably we can probably make a bit of assumption that obviously the media plays a big part in how um, not just early childhood educators but in general Australians and uh, think about policy and politics. Uh, Lisa, we, you know your background as a journalist and, and a thinker on these sort of topics. What what are your you know what are the things you're worried about in terms of how educators are ga- engaging with uh, early childhood policy through the media? I think that. Um, primarily people don't understand that as impartial as media pretend that they are, um, uh, actually journalists aren't absolutely impartial. They have, you know, leanings one way or the other. Sorry, ABC, I know you disagree, but you do. 
Um, but as well as journalists having ideas one way or another, a lot of what we read in the media is influenced by PR companies, it's influenced by the politicians themselves. So an article or a, a topic may come up, you know, what seems to you completely, um, you know, like organically, it's just come into the media and it's being discussed. But behind that, it could be something that a large provider, for example, is pushing. It could be something that, you know, uh, a political party is pushing. And I don't know whether educators necessarily um, follow that what they are reading or what they are viewing on the news may have quite a story behind it. But And also the, the different... Um print media particularly has favours particular ideology as well. So if you open up something like, for example, the Daily Telegraph, then you're going to most often get a, a an ideology through that paper that is that favours the Liberal government. Yes? Really? Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> Sorry. And, <laughs> Well, I, but I think that sometimes it's it's just the, that dis, discerning kind of reading that people have around. You can expect that story from that particular outlet. You can expect, you know, something similar from the Australian. And I think if people think that there's impartiality there from journalists, then, yeah, it's exactly as you're saying. It's just not... It's not going to happen. Yeah, and I think even moving away from even a left-right bias, which you're right, is absolutely there. I think there's also just in terms of how early childhood is positioned even generally in the media, so even in um, publications that we would say would maybe be more biased towards facts and evidence, uh, still you know, don't really treat early childhood as that serious. So it's still... You might get the odd fun story about something happening in childcare. You only need to look at when the latest, you know, the new edition of Staying Healthy in Childcare, Staying Healthy in Early Childhood comes out, and the only stories that come out of it are birthday cakes are banned, and that was even run on the APC and in the, the Fairfax papers as well. So I think we also need to be really careful about just the bias, uh, which is born of, you know, decades of, well, it's just playing with kids, the bias against taking the sector seriously. And that's far harder to argue and fight against because you can. it's pretty easy to make the left-right arguments and people sort of go off into their corners and fight that out. But even just getting, you know, reputable or, or, or you know, <laughs> decent uh, media to just take the sector seriously, I think, is is, is a huge challenge. I, I think with some of those stories, Liam, you've got quite inexperienced journalists on those stories. And so they look, they look for a hook, which is really, you know, the blowing out of the cake and can nobody have a birthday cake anymore? Can we never celebrate Christmas anymore? All of those things, because quite often it's, it is the, the younger, less experienced journalists that are trying to get a quick story away and they're looking for any kind of comment that they can. Well, also and, in the current um, media... And they just put it out there. Well, also in the current media landscape, young and inexperienced journalists are basically all that's left, I think. I think they're the only ones the media companies can afford. <laughs> is that, I don't is that think mean? that's always true. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. But I, I do think that they are put on those sorts of stories, um, and I think that um, the other, the the other stories, we are we do get a, a reasonable level of understanding in some of those other stories through um, through the outlets as well when they're 
when those journalists have children, young children, they're more willing to kind of listen and, <laughs> and hear some of that as well. But it's not always unbiased, as, as you're saying. And I think one of the things I were probably worth discussing about in terms of um, the media is always about how it's sort of filtered through the lens of uh, the the economic impact or the, or the money that's either spent or not spent on early childhood. And we're going to talk about a specific article that Lisa's forced us to read in a little while, but that it's still the, the, the focus is not on the benefit to children or the benefit to society in the long term, but this obsession with how much is being spent and 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 how much you know the families are spending that we can't seem to get in Australia past this debate about and all through and the media. That, and that, that's just ideology, though. I mean, quite even quite separate to media. That's just that's just political ideology, isn't it? So if you go to, for example, the Liberal Party website, which I sort of happened upon when I was uh, having a look around, you see that um, they are working towards a lean government that minimises interference in our daily lives and maximises individual and private sector initiative. So that's going to influence the way that they approach their policy. Um, and Labor has the twin, it's built on the twin themes of social justice and workers' rights. So we're going to get a different ideology coming through. And I think that's really been demonstrated in the way that um, early childhood education or and or childcare has been managed in the last eight, eight years, effectively, or eight to nine years, because you've seen two completely different ideologies influencing the, the landscape. One of the one of the really interesting things I think about ideology is how often you can actually work out what a newspaper's ideology is by reading not the articles but by the comments under the articles. I um, oh. went and looked at a, a childcare article. It's the one that we're going to discuss in a minute. But I'll just read you some of the comments that were under it oh, because God. I think it shows a lot about, you know, what the ideology of the particular newspaper oh, that on. it was printed in, who I'm gonna the readers to, are. I'm going to have to put a warning label on this episode now, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> Brace yourselves, everyone. Okay. Here's a beauty. Why is the modern-day woman too lazy to look after her own children? <laughs> I think we should be told. Or why should taxpayers pay for other people's children? When Kate Ellis and Labourites come up with these grandiose ideas, is there not one journalist to ask her them how we will pay for it? These ideas are great when we are in surplus and can afford them. The grandiose idea they were talking about was um, preschool for three-year-olds. Or the last one is the cost of childcare started... Sorry, I've adopted a, a grumpy old man's voice. Yeah. Because that's who yeah. I imagine saying it. <laughs> you, sound cost... like, you sound like Media Watch. <laughs> yeah. The cost of childcare started going through the roof when the socialist left started referring to them as early learning centres. <laughs> By doing this, implementing massive regulations and changing the whole focus of what childcare centres were meant to be, has meant childcare will never be affordable unless heavily subsidised by the taxpayer. Surely kids can have a few years of playtime, focused childcare with fewer regulations, but quality staff rather than overqualified staff 
before they start their educational run at age five. It goes on, but you get the idea. And those sorts of comments were just, there was 153 of them. I gave up after about the first 50 because I thought I'd slip my wrists if I read any more. But likewise, if you look at the comments from uh, a more progressive paper that or, you know, often written by childcare workers, there'll be things like, why can't we find money to do this? Uh, it takes a community to raise children. Those sorts of comments get written. So if you're never sure if what sort of newspaper you're in, just check the comments under the articles and that'll give you an idea. And often with the Australian, the comments may be indecipherable from the actual article, to be fair. I mean, that that, that could have been a Judas Sloan article you just pieced together there, Lisa. But, um, yeah, well, maybe let's um, – we might do a bit of a deep dive into a specific article and we'll link to it directly in the show notes. But um, I know, Lisa, you wanted to – you think this article gives us a bit of a, a bit of a window into some of the – political issues in Australia around this, but it's an article by Nick Cater with the um, somewhat telling headline, and this is, again, this is after Kate Ellis's uh, National Press Club address, Compassion's fine, but ignoring fiscal reality won't pay the bills. That was my attempt at a media watch voice, by the way. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you wanted to, I think, I think break this down a yeah, little bit, Lisa. Look, I do think that, that this article shows some of the major themes that we're fighting over in early education at the moment between the left and the right. So it was printed in The Australian by a very right-wing writer um, in a very right-wing publication. And so, as Leanne pointed out before, what the less progressive side of politics believe is that there should be small government um, that there shouldn't be a lot of taxpayers' dollars spent on things and that really things like early education and care should perhaps um, uh, be the you know something that's taken on by parents rather than by the economy. So, you know, he goes into quite um, some strong tax on Kate, but uh, uh, he says... He, he pulled out one of her comments was, I don't think that Australian early education and care should be cheap, but I think it should be affordable. And he says, it's difficult to pair those opposing adjectives, expensive but affordable, unless one believes in magic as Labor apparently does. Um, so what, what that one's about is, you know, like uh, that conflict between taxing and not taxing. So the um, conservative side of government says government shouldn't spend much money because if they spend a lot of money, they've got to tax people more. Whereas the progressive side says, you know, things like childcare, early education are for the common good. Therefore, we should tax people and spend that money on that. So that comes out in the very first, you know, paragraph, that difference. The, um, we then go on from there to uh, a, um, a, a thing where he says, in the real world, the shortfall between what childcare services cost and what parents can be can afford must be topped up with taxes. In the real world, we're staring at almost half a trillion dollars worth of government debt. 
In La La Land, on the other hand, it's about fairness, equity and social justice, the touchy-feeler drivers of public policy that got us in the mess in the first place. So he's clearly... Yeah, he's clearly putting, you know, on one side there's high taxation and you get the touchy-feely things like social justice, or in the other word, you get responsible government without, you know, a, a big um, debt. You've got a government that's in surplus. And then he goes on to says um, <clears throat> that... Uh, the question it, it's the question of whether the policies will ever deliver what they pol- what they promise you know uh, many on oh, sorry that's uh, sorry that's all a little bit complex but <clears throat> he then goes on to say uh, fewer public policy areas are as prone to the tyranny of good intentions as childcare Evidence that early childhood learning is a good thing is used to justify ever-growing subsidies on an area that until quite recently was not regarded as the business of the state. The last Labor government's attempts to make childcare affordable were a spectacular failure. And he said that the reason for that was that Julia Gillard's high-minded goal of better educated staff has added... $50 $50 a week to the cost of childcare. And that's one of the key things, again, it's about the battle of for the NQF, is that the, the um, aims of the National Quality Framework, which is to give more and more educated staff, more educated educators, is that a good thing? Or is it, in fact, just some, you know, labour high-minded goal? And, you know, in the the less progressive side of politics, it shouldn't exist. The national quality framework shouldn't exist because it pu- it pushes up um, uh, prices. But his real, um, his real beef is the what he calls the balmy socialist centrally planned scheme that should have disappeared in 1949 with the fall of Ben Shifley's government. What was that? That was um, buying childcare places in bulk from private operators and negotiating down the cost. So he's saying it would never happen. And he's then got a line that says, bureaucrats will be required to calculate the number of kids requiring childcare in each suburb and ensure that the right number of places be made available. And to him, that is the absolute epitome of ridiculousness. Whereas, really, that's what a lot of us would think would be really good planning. He actually compares um, it to Stalin, I think, in my favourite part of the article. I think he's suggesting that's basically <laughs> what happens in Soviet Russia with food. Yeah, yeah precisely. So, I, yeah. I, I think he does say it all when he says most things are better left to the market. And that's, <laughs> that's essentially what... What he believes, but I thought there was something really interesting in there that he he was saying that if there is no evidence that providing childcare um, actually increases workforce participation, thereby ignoring yeah, all yeah, of the evidence yeah. that is available <laughs> <laughs> to support such a claim. Well, ignoring evidence is a prerequisite, I think, for writing this kind of article. Yeah, but it, look, it is. But you know, you can just see like. Um, 
someone who who believes this sort of ideology would read this sort of article and have all their views on childcare affirmed, whereas somebody on the more progressive side would read an article by someone, you know, um, uh, where they're talking about the need for higher qualifications and stuff like that and need for planning around um, childcare places and that have all of their biases confirmed. But what you need to do when you're reading as an educator is to work out which of those two are coming from where and what is the impact of that kind of difference in ideology on the things that affect us in the services. And that's that's sort of bringing it back to the sort of headline question or topic of this one which is you know why why do we need to know this stuff is you need to have a position on that i think now i think the nick hater's article is as as usual you know a sort of inflammatory nonsense but although i think all three of us would strongly disagree you can make a sensible you know reasoned argument as to why you personally don't think that government should fund this kind of thing i completely disagree and all the arguments about the benefits of the entire community blah 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 but if you wanted to make a rationalist economic argument saying look it's families you have children you pay for it you can make that argument but you know as an educator that that's a political view and then you need to decide well or do i agree with that view or do i agree with the view that this is it is actually the government's responsibility to fund just the same as we fund primary and secondary education, just the same as we fund, um, you know, hospitals. Because I think one of the key things, which is why I mentioned the reference to Joseph, our, our buddy Joseph Stalin, if we think back to last episode when we talked about the US, the you know, the, the universal provision of early childhood in the US was literally destroyed because of this ridiculous fear of that it would lead to some communist totalitarian state. And this is not a million miles from that. So there is a real... It, I don't think we should pretend that this isn't an ongoing political battle that we need to fight and we need to be really clear about what the the aims of this stuff are and that we need to you need to yeah as an educator you need to be politically aware about about where that stuff's sitting and be be firm in views as well like really you know clarify your own views on these things because it's much easier to read this stuff when you've got firm views and values because you can just dismiss it and say <laughs> it's rubbish <laughs> for sure one of the things that um, someone I remember very early on in my political career, someone said, gee, it must be so easy for you. You just always know, you know, what your opinion on something is going to be. And I went, yeah, but it's not because I just you know, decided to stick with one side or the other. I have such a commitment to social justice that once you have that commitment, you always just fall on the right side of the decision. <laughs> and I think that's probably why the three of us get on so well, because <laughs> we don't even have to discuss anything and we know which side we're all going to fall on. <laughs> I wonder yeah, if the- we do occasionally it, have our... We need to find some more disagreeing yeah, we topics. Don't, we don't agree on everything, but I think that there is, you know, that very strong view about as you say, Lisa, social justice and, and children's rights. And um, it's it it's unbelievable that this sort of stuff is written still when we're supposed to be a bit more enlightened than this. Well, we've 
ranged and roamed far and wide, I think, over this topic, and we've 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 covered a fair bit. It's probably given people a lot to chew over. But um, uh, we will be, as we sort of said, we'll be coming over to an interview I conducted uh, last week with the new ACT member of the Legislative Assembly, Chris Steele, after a brief musical interlude. So stay with us, and we'll be back in just a second. Hi, it's Liam here from the Early Education Show, and I'm here with Chris Steele, the newly elected MLA for Murrumbidgee. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to be here, Chris, and thanks for fitting us in in your first week in your brand new office. I'm a bit excited to be here. <laughs> As am I. Yeah, very excited <laughs> to get into it, and early childhood would certainly be a priority for me. Uh, as a newly elected member, so I'm really keen to have a chat about it. So before we get into your current role, Chris, which is uh, very exciting, and um, we've been talking a bit about you in the podcast, actually, which I probably haven't told you about, but you can go back and listen to them now. Um, I'd really like to get a chat to you, I'll have a chat with you just about your sort of personal journey in early childhood, and I might, I'm might i going to flick something to you, which you might have forgotten. Facebook, you know that ridiculous Facebook yes. on, the, on this yeah. day feature reminded me of a day... 2011, so five years ago, where we first met, which was at the signing at the Legislative Assembly of the National Quality Framework, going into um, law in the ACT, and that was when we first met a bunch of other early childhood advocates when you were working for Minister Joy Birch at the time in the ACT. But I don't know, was that your first sort of working for Joy Birch was your first sort of exposure to early childhood? Actually, it goes back a little bit further than that. So um, I actually worked for the Beasley Opposition um, and back in 2005, 2006, the, the government, um, then Howard government, was actually putting through changes to improve um, or increase the childcare benefit. Um, and I was actually asked as a um, freshly um, minted part-time electorate officer to model the childcare benefit. And that um, was the first taste of, oh God. of early childhood that I got. And, and you're still here? <laughs> yeah, it's an incredibly complex payment. And um, so I found it quite difficult but you know we managed to, to do some work on it um, and I've sort of been doing that ever since in a, in a way and um, of course that payment's changed um, somewhat since then um, but that was my first sort of entree into early childhood um, by way of the payment system and then um, of course later down the track I did um, start working for the ACT government just about a month before the national quality framework was actually signed by COAG. Yeah. Uh, so an agreement between the states and territories and the Commonwealth to improve the quality of early childhood services. And I've pretty much been on that journey ever since in terms of making sure we're implementing the NQF. Uh, that included bringing legislation into the ACT. Um, but then I also worked for the Australian government um, as well, making sure that and holding the states to <laughs> account in, in delivering the NQF and also finding what was a really quite fraught policy debate uh, on the National Quality Framework, which continues to this day, um, quite a divisive um, issue within the sector. Um, and that journey continues, even though I'm in a new role, um, and we're certainly you know, more milestones to go with the NQF with the two teacher uh, degree qualifiers by 2020 in all long daycare services over a certain size, and also in 2018. Uh, making sure all staff are actually qualified and not working towards as well. Yeah. So I think that probably takes us, I'm going to lay out your career for you, you can get me when I'm wrong, when I've gone wrong, Chris, but I think that takes us to about 2012, 2013, and then the next time I heard of you or saw you, I think 
you were working for Kate Ellis, who had just been appointed. Now, there was the slightly bizarre split between her and Peter Garrett at the time, but she had some ministerial responsibility for early childhood. I have a feeling... Split I, in portfolio, split in only. Portfolio. <laughs> 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 I did never know who I... I think I just wrote yeah. both of them instead of annoying one of yeah. them at a the time. I think I might have invited Kate Ellis to the centre I directed at the time. I think you may have come to yes. visit, which was Bluebell. Yeah. Well, Connors, that was the next time I saw you you'd, uh, then moved up to working with... Um, Kate Ellis, that obviously gave you, obviously with your your already existing knowledge and background in the early childhood space, but then how was that sort of translating that to the national level? And, and actually, probably be good to hear specifically about what did you, what was your work involved then with advocates? How did you get to know what organisations did you sort of work with and how did you find that relationship? Yeah. So in terms of the transition to the federal, I think it was quite easy because these were national reforms that we were dealing with. So um, I learned how the ACT uh, had dealt with the NQF. Um, and it's slightly different in each state and territory and there are some nuances there um, but it was simply just um, increasing the size of <laughs> the number of stakeholders that you had to deal with uh, and all of and all of those sorts of things so I started to work very closely with um, the early childhood sector and I think it's fair to say that um, you know not that long ago um, we're talking sort of within sort of six to six to eight years the early childhood sector's come a long way in terms of their advocacy. Back at the start of the NQF, I don't think um, they were as sophisticated in their advocacy, but they were forced to actually improve to make sure that the early childhood sector and children were represented uh, well, both in the media um, and in internal advocacy um, uh, in relation to government. So um, I think it's come in leaps and bounds and um, there was quite a big debate between um, different stakeholders. And I think, you know, to put it on the record, um, there's one particular stakeholder that has opposed the NQF right the way through. It's the Child Care, National um, Australian Childcare Alliance and their, their state branches. Um, and then pretty much the rest of the early childhood sector that were prepared to stand up for children, stand up for quality and support the national quality framework because they saw that even though these were really challenging reforms, that they were so important for Australia's future prosperity that they needed to be implemented. And that's actually put us on a really strong base now to yeah. be able to embark on other reforms to improve access to yeah. early childhood services as yeah. well. Well, I think the I mean the National Quality Framework reforms um, have actually been internationally held up as some of the best uh, policy around early childhood um, out there. And it's still obviously in the rollout phase, you can always improve on things. But, you know, I've heard from... Um, Zinesh and Canadian and US academics just going, oh God, how did you manage to get a national system that actually upholds quality? So I think it's, it is, I, I think you're absolutely right and, and I'm probably guilty of this myself is not recognising how important that structural reform is and um, the, the need probably, as you said, to keep advocating for it just because it's in place, we probably need to make sure that continues. So um, for your time working for, for Kate Ellis, I guess, gave you that national focus. And then um, your next role was working with ECA, which I want to talk to you a bit, a bit later on. We get into a little bit of a chat about advocacy. But um, you obviously then announced, uh, God, it probably feels to you about, I don't know, 10 years ago, but a few months ago, your yeah. candidacy in the local ACT um, elections. Did you want to talk a bit about you know, what, why you sort of made that decision to, um, to sort of stand and then successfully yeah. be elected? Well, there's only so much you can you can do in a community organisation advocating. I think there's a lot you can do, and we can chat about that in a second. <laughs> um, but I, I sort of had felt that um, uh, as an advisor, uh, I'd done an, I'd done you know my dues as an advisor, um, 
and I'd done my work as you know an advocate for in the community trying to lobby government to improve um, the quality of early childhood education, improve access to quality early childhood education. And um, I wanted to amplify that advocacy, which is why I thought running was a good idea and that was the one way to do that, actually being in the room making the decisions um, around these policies. And so that's why I st stuck up my hand and it was definitely not a fait accompli as to whether I'd be one pre-selected or then you know elected. Um, but it seems to have worked out, which is fantastic. So um, the ACT likes to keep people people hanging with the hair clerk system as that's, well. That's which right. I do not have time to get into <laughs> here or at any time probably. But so it has been um, yeah successful. But and now I'm sort of in the stage of um, working out how I'm going to advocate here in the assembly on these sorts of issues. But I've got a few ideas. And, Wonderful. That's yeah. right. Well, it's only week one, so I'll give you a break now <laughs> in terms of what you have, have got done yet. But um. So I wanted to talk a bit about your time at Early Childhood Australia. So you were there uh, for three or four years? Time's compared to just over three years. Yeah. And probably during that time, there was some significant advocacy work that was, I guess, sort of imposed on ECA given the time, given the what was happening in the sector, but also just some significant work that ECA was doing as well. So, um, you know, as the peak, uh, you know, representative body, body for um, uh, Early Childhood Australia. And I'd, I'd look, I'd say children and young people really in Australia as well. Um, you know, how was that? How was that move? Sort of, you know, from government advice and working in that policy space to to working in, I guess, having gone from meeting with advocates to becoming one yourself and and, and being in that role. What were some of the big successes um, and challenges for you in that sort of time? Yeah. Look, I think um, coming from government, it was a really great opportunity rather than um, sitting at the strategic policy level, actually getting down into the detail and. Um, grappling with the evidence and actually um, leading the policy debates, really, because I think a lot of this stuff comes from the sector. It doesn't just come from, from government. Um, so one of the big successes I'd, I'd point to, firstly, was making sure that the M NQF was embedded. Um, it wasn't you know, a fait accompli that the coalition government was going to continue to support the NQF. They ran uh, a very significant... Um, campaign against the National Quality Framework just prior to coming to government in 2013. Uh, but when they took government, it was a result of lobbying by the early childhood sector that resulted in them continuing to support yeah. and not dismantling critical elements like staff-to-child ratios and the yeah. qualification standards. So I think we, we uh, I think we can underestimate how, how important and how effective that was. I don't know if we've ever as a sector or as ECA or as anyone sort of patted ourselves on the back but you're absolutely right there was very specific commentary by I remember Susan Lay who um, was the shadow minister and then became the minister one of several we had in the last term of government for early childhood was very specifically talking about a rollback or a removal of the national quality look words red tape were bandied about like confetti um, that didn't happen and even um, I think they were even sort of they had to eventually be pretty clear their strong support for the national quality framework and that was um, you know, I've, I've, I'm regularly sort of um, and having a go at advocacy not being good enough and that we're a bit too disparate and we're a bit, you know, but yeah. that was actually pretty successful advocacy um, initiative and you're right, it's worth uh, acknowledging that. Yeah. So that was the, the I think, something that you, you're quite right, hasn't been acknowledged enough and it was a huge, really huge win. Then the Productivity Commission mm. inquiry, which was an election commitment by the Coalition in the 2013 election, was implemented. So the, the Productivity Commission, so primarily in, you know, economically focused... Not exactly body. a lefty think tank. <laughs> no, but, not all, but, but also not very much focused on social policy either. Yeah. 
um, you know, at least from from a holistic point of view, uh, went away and did this inquiry into um, uh, childcare and early learning, and. The inquiry really lasted around two years with multiple stages, multiple draft reports. And it was a particularly fatiguing time for the sector because yeah. they'd just come from continuing to implement the National Quality Framework and then having yeah. to, to be engaged in this, which they knew were, was important and they knew that it was going to be influential. Yeah. And so um, the sector, I think, um, you know, really rallied behind making sure that they were involved in that. Perhaps there wasn't the level of cohesion that there could have been, uh, but I think there was an attempt to try and make sure that there were shared messages being put to the Commission around the National Quality Framework, making yeah. sure that, that was maintained, but also trying to come up with some sort of new system that would actually increase the number of children currently accessing yeah. quality early childhood education programs. Yeah. And um, I have to say, uh, at the end of the day, I don't think the Commission got it right. I don't think that they got the evidence right, they didn't um, assess the evidence, I think, the way that academics would have and certainly um, other countries have overseas yeah. and other governments have overseas. Uh, and as a result of that, the reforms that they put up, um, I don't think quite hit the mark. And that's why even when the coalition government uh, looked at the recommendations, they came up with a package that was quite quite different yeah. in a lot of ways to what they'd yeah. uh, what had been recommended to them. And I suppose it was kind of inevitable given, except we are right there, an economic sort of uh, productivity inquiry model. They're not going to be looking at the social policy. Well, then I mean, they were directed to, to some extent, pretty low down on the terms for reference I seem to remember, but um, you're, you're absolutely right. So we've talked occasionally um, in the, the, the show in the last sort of uh, 10 episodes or so about the the government's proposed reforms, so the Jobs for Families package. Um, it's uh, It's been a long time coming. So the product, so the government came to power in 2013, did the Productivity Commission review, and basically sort of uh, proposed their, their reform package as a response to that. It took quite a while, and now won't be due to start until 2018. So this is a long period of time. The sector's been sort of waiting for reform. Um, look, I've, I've always been pretty critical about the package for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I've sort of Lisa and Leanne, there's, there's, as you said, the sector's very diverse and very fragmented on this. There are good parts of the package. I think that they're outweighed by the by the um, by the by the bad parts of it. So particularly the, the you know the risk to closure of the budget-based funded services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, um, the the work activity test um, just uh, you know creates a lot of these issues. The fact it's called the Jobs for Families package gives gives me an idea of what the government's thinking of. Um, you know, it, it must have been it would be very difficult, I would imagine, being in a peak provider when you have to work with the government and you're looking at sort of improving I guess what's a bad package you know um, and I don't want to put you in a difficult position where you want to disclose how, how, how difficult that part was for ECA but you know that that's been I think that's been a very so when I sort of say the time you've been in ECA it's been probably a very difficult advocacy time so we're looking at we've, we've had stalled reforms we've had you know challenging reforms put up how What's, what's it sort of like to have to navigate that and deal with stakeholders and deal with governments, deal with crazy bloggers like myself or Leanne or Lisa? Well, uh, it is part of, you know, the difficult role of a community organisation in trying to work with government. I think a lot of these organisations are trying to be as pragmatic as possible to the government of the day, um, trying to work with them to get the best out of the package. And um, there's no doubt that there's a significant amount of money on the table here. So in a sense, that is a success of a, of a campaign, of a campaign's run by 
your childhood sector to get extra investment because yeah. that was a that was the primary issue is we weren't investing enough in early childhood education and care and this was going to put in an additional what was 3.5 billion now is 3 billion and may even be less than that <laughs> um we don't know uh but it it, it does create challenges um um, challenges around values because um, you know all the organisations that are lobbying have their own set of values and their members um, you know hold them accountable to those values and one of those is protecting the rights of children their right to education in particular and if the package doesn't deliver that then that creates creates tension and for some children it doesn't and the activity test is the fundamental barrier there because um, there's a lot of children whose parents simply don't work and they're the most vulnerable children. And <laughs> those, most need to access. And, yeah. and some of those children are in families that do earn over a certain threshold as well. Yeah. Uh, and the threshold that they were looking at at 65,000 family income, um, you know, captures a certain number of children for a minimum level of access. But there's a whole range of other families there that, are, that will receive zero dollars um, <laughs> as a result of yeah. um, this activity test. And that's a real problem yeah. when we really want the end goal to be improving the participation of, of children in early childhood programs and having full participation for certain age groups. Yeah. So I'd say that's probably one of the most problematic parts of advocacy, both the ECA and for the rest of the sector during that time. But uh, turning around to some of the uh, some very positive steps, even probably just in the last few weeks, the, the discussion about extending universal access to preschool to three-year-olds has has really become a bit of a national talking point. And um, I know that's something that Early Childhood Australia has been uh, pushing forward for a long time, along with a whole range of other advocates as well, but they've had some specific um, uh, campaigns, particularly the Early Learning Everyone Benefits um, campaign. Uh, and obviously that's been pushed forward again by Kate Ellis's recent um, National Press Club speech, where she's looked at um, like really reframing the debate and looking at the reform, a, a big, big picture reform for the early childhood sector. So are you, you know, just as, as, as an advocate and from your time at you know, ACA as well, are you happy that's sort of suddenly really sort of shot to prominence? Yeah. Well, it's funny because we're talking at, about it as sort of the next big policy reform. But the reality is that all other countries, uh, <laughs> developed countries in the OECD, yeah. have already done this. And um, you know, the latest cab off the rank is Ireland. Um, they had, uh, they d basically implemented uh, a program of universal access for four-year-olds, like we did, yeah. uh, in, back in two thousand and nine, and continuing to implement. Um, and now, um, just two months ago, they've started to implement it for three-year-olds. Yeah. Um, so we are the UK way is behind. At, the UK is looking at two-year-olds. Well, right. I've drunk the Kool-Aid yeah. as well, Chris. I'm, I'm congratulating us for uh, even having this conversation. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and you know, the UK has had um, have you know full access um, fifteen hours for, for three and four-year-olds, and then forty percent of the most dis um, disadvantaged. Um, two-year-olds it's a large number that's you know not talking about um, children families earning under 65,000 that is 40% of children who are two um, who are actually accessing it and now the conservative government is looking to um, increase those hours to 30 hours a week free yeah. um, I mean the policy debate here is is very underdeveloped but I'm very glad that it's moved on yeah. to the three-year-olds and I think you know this isn't um, an, an area I know um, Kate Ellis is um, sort of claimed this as, as being the next policy reform. It, there's no reason why this can't be adopted by coalition governments. This is not um, a matter of you know partisan policy. Um, the benefits of this are really clear. The Mitchell Institute's really um, shown that. Um, 
but it does need to be a universal system. I think that's where we've got a long way to go on this debate, um, just to demonstrate that the benefits of, an, of, um, of th the three-year-old program can only really be delivered if we've got a universal system that draws in the vulnerable children rather than having a targeted system. And I think um, you know, there's still a bit of debate to go on that and there is a, a different report coming out uh, by the Australian Institute for Family Studies that sort of goes in the opposite direction, which is you know, supporting more of a targeted approach to improving access to three-year-olds. But it is the next um, area of policy development. And I think I've, one of the successes, I think, over the past few years from the sector's point of view is that this came from the sector saying, look, we've done it for four-year-olds, we've got the national quality framework, so the quality is starting to improve in early childhood services, it's still a way to go. We've got the um, two, uh, two teachers in every long daycare centre by 2020, and that will actually enable us to potentially deliver more preschool places. So um, it is the right time to be looking at this. And I think Kate Ellis is absolutely right that um, we need to have the bold policy debate around this and now's the right time to do it before we implement uh, the changes for the Jobs for Families childcare package yeah. um, in 2019, uh, 2018, sorry. Having said that, there's still a role for subsidies in addition to providing children with universal access, because certainly for the younger age group of the zero to threes, there's definitely a role for um, subsidised access for workforce participation reasons and for early childhood development reasons. And we don't want to lose that in the debate because I think the, that zero to three years is really critical for children's brain development and language development. And you know their access to qualified educators yeah. during that period is critical as well. So I always just wonder why we've, we've linked those so tightly because I think I mean, most of the research is pretty clear if you improve access to early childhood education, the workforce participation improves anyway, and obviously particularly for women. But it's always, it's always interesting to me why you couldn't have that, but then separate it out. So have your early childhood education initiatives, which will have benefit anyway, but then you know do some more targeted workforce initiation. I think one of the big problems, and actually I might ask you that question directly. We had this discussion last week, probably particularly about uh, the three-year-old preschool, but more general, generally, I think we just said, why is it so difficult in Australia for advocacy, for early, for, for early child, and I would just say young children in general, why is it so difficult to, to, to push it forward in Australia? And with, with your experience in and out of government and in and out of advocacy roles, what's your sort of view on why this, so, why this is so hard? Yeah. I think it, partially it's because of the federal financial relations and the Commonwealth having the money to be able to do it. and. Um, and the states being essentially the regulators, but also the people who deliver the funding uh, that does come from the, from the Commonwealth. But I think we've shown through the Universal Access Program for the four-year-olds that that can be done can successfully. Yeah. There's, There's a lot its, of work. <laughs> it's got its own problems, yeah. that, that program, but we can improve on that uh, and extend that access for three-year-olds. So I think it's, I think it's definitely workable. Uh, the problem has also been unscrambling the egg, which is what Kate Ellis, how Kate Ellis described <laughs> it, which is our current childcare benefit, childcare rebate, government childcare assistance arrangements. Changing them is just, just fraught with complexity. Yeah. And coming up with a new system overnight is quite difficult, yeah. especially when you've got a variety of different players from the um, not-for-profit and for-profit sector as well. We've got... Um, a lot of for-profit providers listed on the stock exchange and there's more coming. Yeah. Um, and 
it actually will affect their share price if you suddenly <laughs> remove childcare subsidies and put it into defined preschool programs that are funded through yeah. what Kate Ellis, I think, was suggesting should happen, which is yeah. uh, looking at uh, a model of direct purchasing for preschool services yeah. so that the taxpayer gets the um, benefit of knowing that their dollars are being put into early childhood development, not in, not into the pockets of yeah. large prof- for-profit providers. Yeah. So. Um, there are this this sector has been fraught with complexity. The Productivity Commission itself itself acknowledges that this is one of the most complex areas that it's ever looked at um, in its existence. So um, it isn't easy, but it's so incredibly important for Australia's future prosperity that we get it right. And when you actually present politicians with the evidence showing that um, two to three years of of preschool education delivered by a qualified educator has the same if not more effect um, at age 16 than the whole of their primary education you can understand why um, you know we absolutely have to make this a priority and um, and how powerful it can be uh, yeah. as well so it's probably a good segue Chris just because um, the point of the episode we're doing today is about sort of um, a bit of politics 101 so we wanted to a um, give people a bit of a rundown on Australia's political system and how to engage it but also talking to educators and professionals about why it's important to engage so it can be you're right it's insanely complicated even just the early childhood part but I think politics in general um, can turn people off and you know being involved and not everyone's an insane nerd like I am and this is reading all the newspapers but um, you know with your background experience why you know talking directly I guess to the educators and professionals who may be listening today why and hopefully I'm, I'm assuming the answer would be yes but what you know why for you is it important that you know, the people working directly in centres working with children become involved in the political process and, um, you know, either either directly through maybe standing for parliament one day or indirectly, you know, through advocacy and writing to MPs. It's critically important and there's certainly a role that, you know, the whole sector can play in advocating on these issues and it's part of the ethical obligation of um, early childhood professionals to actually engage and promote public policy, laws and, um, and other things to improve the outcomes for children. Um, one of those is universal access, and it's actually explicitly mentioned in the Code of Ethics yeah. because it's so important. Um, and so that can be done in a variety of different ways, and you don't necessarily need a great wealth of knowledge about politics to, in order to engage in professional advocacy. In Simply inviting a politician to your centre and showing them what you do is really important to improve that politician's understanding of the early childhood sector and the benefit that it has for children. I don't think necessarily all politicians understand that um, what happens in childcare centres. They simply don't... And they very, and they very rarely say no because it's a great photo opportunity. They'll yeah, basically go over the photo opportunity with the children yeah. and then you, you get them in, you whack them over the head with the early childhood stuff. They very rarely say no. That's right. Well, you've, you know, you've invited me and others to your centres in the, in the past and um, it's been a great opportunity to actually see what happens, engage with some of the staff and... Um, you can actually point to direct examples about how a particular programs being run this service uh, has supported a child's developmental milestones. So um, that's incredibly powerful and that absolutely needs to be part of what we do. And, but of course there are other ways as well, joining your you know, professional organisations, whether that be a union or Tiger Australia or um, Quadruple C New South Wales, um, <laughs> and engaging 
in building your advocacy and leadership skills is, is really critically important as well. And um, of course, engaging online and that's something that I know you've done lately quite a bit, <laughs> but it works because that's where the journalists are, um, yeah. particularly on Twitter, but also where the politicians are and, um, and it's a great way of um, advocating. But um, the Early Learning Everyone Benefits campaign is one, mm-hmm. uh, another one, and it's certainly something I encourage people to get behind. It's a positive campaign, so it doesn't have any... It's not slapping government down for doing something. It's actually trying to build awareness about the benefits of quality early learning for children's development and for Australia's future prosperity with some really simple messages um, uh, around the research and um, the really powerful messages around the... Australian Early Development Census that we know one in five children are developmentally vulnerable before they start school. So it, it sort of talks to politicians that are interested in um, the economic um, uh, benefits um, of education, um, trying to improve educational outcomes, which is a really big focus at the state level and trying to uh, make sure you know schools' NAPLAN results continue to increase as much as I know the sector hates NAPLAN. <laughs> And also, um, you know, making sure that children actually have experience a fantastic early childhood program as they are right then in there in the service rather than what they are yeah. 10 years down the track. Which is what this all comes down to in the yeah. end anyway, yeah. Well, Chris, I really appreciate all your time. That's, um, we've covered a lot of topics, but um, congratulations again on your, your election. You'll definitely be getting an invite to some of my centres in the next little while in your new role. Um, but, uh, yeah, good luck and enjoy the first, uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm keen to have um, the early childhood sector up here to hopefully <laughs> spread the message amongst my <laughs> colleagues as well. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Welcome back. So thanks again to Chris Steele for letting me barge into his uh, still being constructed office, actually. Well, not constructed, but he's still getting in furniture and everything was very, very kind of him to um, do his sort of... uh, I think I'm going to claim his first sort of uh, formal interview in in his new role was with the Early Education Show. So there you go. I think I can formally list this as an exclusive now, can't I, Lisa, with your your journalist knowledge? Can I call this an exclusive now? Oh, I think you can. Excellent. That's all right. And I did say that thanks to Chris for letting me pretend I was a journalist or in any way a decent interviewer. So hopefully that wasn't too hard to get through for everyone. I think you did an excellent job. Oh, thank you. But let's move on to our recommendations for the week. I think we're all lined up. Do you want to – how about you first, Leanne? Uh, Yeah, mine is actually across – as they call it, across the ditch uh, in New Zealand. And it is uh, about the government reviewing – the early childhood curriculum which is the Tifariki and it's been in place for 20 years and it's it's actually up for review um, and it's a great little article and I think the thing is that it is it, it does tell us about that government um, influence and political influence on pedagogy because this is going to be examining uh, whether it, it still has the uh, the right relevance and is robust for children into the future and there's a response there from the early education council which is saying we need to make sure that this isn't going to create a primary school curriculum in early childhood and we're really going to be on watch with this so i think it's a great example of where where um pedagogy is influenced by uh policy decision making and policy review 
And it's definitely one for Australian education professionals to follow because the national quality framework reforms and particularly the early years learning framework parts, so the curriculum parts were uh, heavily influenced by Tefariki. So where that goes will probably be an interesting, um, will probably raise some interesting questions for Australia as well. Um, thanks, Leanne. What about you, Lisa? Look, I'm a, um, I really want people to read this one, and so I'm not going to tell you, you a lot about the content of it, but it's called The Preschooler's Empathy Void, and it's from the Atlantic, and it does some wonderful stories about education. And this one um, is looking at at what stage empathy and um, an understanding of social justice actually develops in children. And it's kind of positing that it happens at around five and that preschoolers actually don't have that. And it analyzes quite a bit of research that's been done, different studies. I thought it was quite compelling, but um, I'd posted it on a website that deals with social justice and, um, uh, and early education. And quite a few educators have said, nah, research is bad. You know, <laughs> they're just um, extrapolating from small things and it's different if children know people and stuff like that. So I think everyone should go on and um, have a read of this one. The link will be there and um, tell me what you think. Is it, you know, is it actually correct or not? When do children develop their sense of social justice? Mm. Yeah, they, they definitely, I'd add my recommend. It's a really interesting article. Actually, The Atlantic has had a few um, good uh, early childhood focuses over the last couple of years, so definitely check that out. Well, my recommendation is, of course, the coming to the cinema, the six reconstructed animated episodes of a 1966 Doctor Who serial. Uh, no, that's just my <laughs> pretend one to annoy Lisa. I am going to that tomorrow, though, and I'm really, really excited. This is probably oh, the nerdiest God. thing I've ever done. Oh, no. <laughs> it's very, very exciting. But uh, my actual recommendation is a little bit related to that, but it's a bit of a cheat as well. It is actually, the article itself is a little old. I think it's from August. And what it's referring is, I think, even a few years older than that. But it's such a fantastic point of view. I share it every single time I can. Um, and it's uh, it's basically um, some words from uh, author Neil Gaiman, who is a sort of, um, he's a very wide-ranging author. He's done non-fiction, fiction. He's done a lot of sort of um, what we sort of term genre fiction, so sci-fi and that kind of stuff. So I've uh, read a lot. And he's got of... a wonderful wife. He does, Amanda Palmer, who's amazing, yes. And they it's hard to tell between the two of them who has the best hair, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a toss-up <laughs> depending on either of them. But uh, just really quickly, he has this fantastic, when he was the, uh, the children's laureate in the UK in, uh, a few years back, he gave this fantastic speech, which has just stayed with me for a long time, where he talks about the importance of not being um, a sort of fussy or, or, or um, there's a really obvious word that I'm struggling to reach, but not being um, uh, pompous about what children read, letting children read what they want to read. And it's far more important that they develop a love of reading rather than reading the right things. And it's, it's particularly from the UK where he's based, where there's this insistence on reading Shakespeare and and reading, um, you know, all these worthy texts, which children, of course, universally hate, and that generally leads to a general hatred of reading. And he's saying, let them read, you know, whether it be comics or, you know, whether it be, you know, books that we might not deem as worthy, you know, like, you know Goosebumps as an example. And it particularly spoke to me, because growing up, um, you'll be shocked to hear, I basically, all I read was Doctor Who books and Star Trek and all these, you know, books that are, you know, are, are, 
definitely not worthy, but the love of reading it instilled in me has has stayed with me to this day, whereas by now there's, there's not a day that goes by where I'm not reading something. I normally have about five or six books on the go. And it's because, you know, in full credit to my family, they just they let me read the books that I loved and didn't push any any books on me. And, and particularly for boys, it, that there is this inherent elitism and and thing that puts boys off from reading. So letting them read what they want to read is a really, really critical and crucial thing, which, um, yeah, anytime I get the chance to spruik that point of view, I will. So definitely worth checking out. But Sounds brilliant. Can't wait to read it myself, Nat. Oh, go for it. And then you can listen to an Amanda Palmer song as well, as, as um, <laughs> oh, imitation. Yeah. I think I'm just reading the beginning of it, and I love the bit that says that... Um, uh, how many prisoners that there's going to be in America can be predicted really easily using a pretty simple algorithm based on about asking what percentage of 10 and 11-year-olds couldn't read and certainly couldn't read for pleasure. And yeah. that's what gave them how many prisons are needed. That's wow. terrifying. Oh, God. That is very terrifying. That's right. I feel like this uh, election in America is a bit of a, um, uh, like a, uh, it shows, it'll, it'll show a lot about their education system. Absolutely. Well, I think we will leave it there to wrap up. Thanks for sticking with us for another very long episode. We will uh, once again include all the links to the various things we've discussed in the show notes for the podcast. If you get a chance, um, please head over to the iTunes store and give us a rating and review. Um, As I've said, it really helps other early childhood professionals find the podcast. Uh, If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do that on Facebook or Twitter. The handle on both is Early Edu Show, so that's Early E-D-U Show. Uh, You can also get in touch touch with the three of us individually and why wouldn't you we're lovely lovely people so you can find us uh find me on twitter at liam mcnicholas i think liam's a lot nicer than me but i'm lisa (laughs) j bryant and i'm leanne m gibbs three and she's the nicest of the three of us that is absolutely very true no one will argue with that but um, until next week, I uh, hope uh, everyone uh, yep, has a fantastic week. And if you're going to check out the Doctor Who Power of the Daleks animated reconstruction, <laughs> give me a heads up. Liam, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Oh, have a great time, Leah. Have I will. I'm so excited. Lisa, we're going to ca- catch up offline. I'm going to tell you all about it. It's very exciting. But until next week, it's bye from me. <laughs> and me. And from me. 